We are in John's Gospel this morning once again, and John is writing to us the true story of God's salvation to us in Jesus Christ. And John is very clear about his purpose for writing. He has written all these things he tells us in his Gospel so that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That is to say, he's the hero of God's story. And that by believing in him, we might have life in his name. So we are learning from John what it is to have life in Jesus Christ as his people. This morning we find ourselves at the beginning of what scholars and theologians call his farewell discourse. John chapters 13 through 17. Here's what the scene looks like before we read. Jesus and his closest followers are gathered together in a small room in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover. And as Jesus himself knows on this night, this is the night of his arrest. This night will set everything in motion which will culminate in his crucifixion. So over the next five chapters, John records for us Jesus delivering his final words. His most urgent message, his last will and testament. To those who have been journeying with him, to his followers, and to those who will continue his ministry after he's gone. Listen this morning to how Jesus begins these, his final words to his disciples. John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children... Yet a while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we recognize once again that we approach uh, the very words that you have given to us, to your people, over thousands of years so that we might know you. We approach these words, Father, in many different places. We ask that by your Spirit, you would give us insight into what they mean for us, both individually and corporately, not because we deserve it because you are gracious. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On this scene this morning, there is, uh, there's real reason for panic in this room on this night. You would be hard-pressed to find a situation that holds more reason for pessimism than this one. Let me just lay out for you for a moment the reality that the disciples are facing, some of which Jesus has already told them that they should prepare themselves for. Number one, their leader, their founder, their mentor is, he's about to die. Number two, they face the internal pressure of two immediate betrayals among the leadership, Judas and Peter. In fact, if you're paying attention in your Bibles, this passage comes in between those two predictions. There is disloyalty and cowardice within the executive leadership of this fledgling movement. Number three, the cultural conditions are extremely hostile. Extremely hostile. 
by the immediate religious culture, the Judaism of the day, the followers of Jesus are considered a heretical sect that must be wiped out. By the larger civic culture, the Romans, the followers of Jesus are considered a rebellious nuisance that can be wiped out. The disciples have no voice, they have no influence, they have no vote. Number four, not only that, but Jesus tells them here in a few chapters that they will be misunderstood and hated by the wider world as well. The early Christians were charged by the Romans with atheism because they worshiped a God that no one could see. There's no visual representation. Worst off, they were also charged with cannibalism because they talked about eating the body and blood of their founder. Recently, you know that conservative Christians have been charged with bigotry because of traditional beliefs about marriage. And certainly that's disheartening to many, that moral disagreement now gets subsumed under the category of bigotry, but I would think the charge of cannibalism would be even more frustrating. It was a charge that validated extreme persecutions at the the hands of the empire for centuries to come. And finally, besides being misunderstood, I just want you to consider the outcome of the lives of these men in this room um, uh, tonight, that night. They've already left their families, their friends, their jobs, their homes to follow Jesus. And all but one of them will die a martyr's death for loving him. And the one that won't will be exiled in an island in Patmos to live by himself the rest of his days. Now let me ask you a question. Is this a room you would be excited to be in? Is this a movement that you would be rushing to sign up for? Probably not. It does seem like this little community would be a breeding ground for pessimism, for cynicism, and for panic. Yet in our passage this morning, do you detect even a hint of panic in Jesus' tone? Any cynicism? Any pessimism about the future? I don't see any. In the midst of all these internal pressures of sin, disloyalty, and abandonment, and the external pressures of hatred, misunderstanding, and persecution, Jesus chooses in this moment to talk about glory and about love. And implicitly, he is saying that if you belong to him, despite all the challenges you face in the world, life in the church, even in your own heart, There is no reason for you to panic this morning. When our first son was born a little over eight years ago, it was a a very long, intense delivery. It was excruciating. It was unnerving. And I was, I like to say, I was involved as possible. As involved as possible. For the entire duration, I was active. I was close to the situation. I was was synchronized my breathing. Okay? holding my wife's hand. I was cheering her on. I think coaching might be too strong of a word. And then John Randall comes into the world. It's our firstborn son's name, John Randall. And the nurses place him in Jada's arms. And the first thing I say is, man, I am exhausted. I'm going to go over here and sit down for a little bit. And in retrospect, and tell by your reaction, those were not the right first words. Jada gave me a look of holy rage that suggested she could end me except for the newborn in her arms and the fact that she was tied down by tubes. But her point with that look and and through all all the embarrassing renditions of that story since was this. 
sweetheart, you don't have the grounds to be exhausted. (laughs) Your perspective, even as a husband, even as someone who is active and close to the situation, does not clear you to be tired enough to deserve rest in this moment. Looking back, I completely agree. The early disciples were as close to Jesus and as actively involved with this movement as possible. It's true of the church even now. Jesus is about to tell us that he is literally in us and we are in him. We are as close as possible. And yet, still our perspective does not give us the grounds for pessimism or panic. Only Jesus. Only God in the flesh sits in a place where real panic is warranted. And yet here he is on this night, on the verge of his own betrayal and humiliation and death, and he is entirely hopeful. He is hopeful for the glory of God. And he is hopeful for the restoration of a world that is hostile and opposed to him. I just want you to see briefly this morning where the hope comes from, because it's a hope that should be growing in us as well as his people. It's a hope that should be grounding us as his people. What is Jesus' hope? Where does it come from? What finally is Jesus' strategy for us and for our world? You know, medical professionals tell us that when we're in a state of panic, maybe you felt this before, um, uh, typically what happens, either individually or communally, we tend to go into fight or flight mode. When we're panicked, we go fight or flight. We either, you know, we either gear up for battle or we run away for protection. And just a few chapters later in John 18, you can see both happen in the life of Peter in just a few scenes. In one scene, Peter draws his sword and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And in two scenes later, just, I mean, hours later, he is willing to deny any association with Jesus at all. Ironically, from a relative of the person whose ear he had cut off. Panic typically provokes flight or fight. You can see it in the history of the church when things heat up internally or externally. When the pressure is on, the church often draws its sword to fight power with the same kind of power. Or the church runs away to insulate itself from new cultural threats. Is that what Jesus is after? Is that the strategy? Not according to this passage. What he's after on this night is love. His love for us. And our love for one another. That is his hope. The optimism of Jesus comes from the power of holy love activated and operative in a world that we are deeply still involved in. I want us to look at those two things briefly this morning in order to ground our own hope, in order to focus on what Jesus wants for us. First, his love for us. Then secondly, I want you to see our love for one another. His love for us. And then secondly, his hope and our love for one another. Look at me again in verses 31 through 32. John writes, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now, if you you can't see the part before this, the he in the passage refers to Judas. It is Judas's betrayal and departure that will set the death of Jesus in motion. And that's what the now refers to. What John is telling us, what Jesus is telling us, is that the glory of Jesus, the glory of God, consists in the Son being handed over for humiliation and for death. 
Now let me remind you just for a second what the word glory actually means. Glory means splendor. Glory means exultation and beauty and majesty. Glory is the fame and affirmation that an athlete wins at the Olympics when she crosses the finish line first. She stands on the podium, a gold medal is hung around her neck. The national anthem plays and all the world's eyes are on her. That's glory. Glory is the majesty that a ruler possesses if he governs well, for example, uh, for the prosperity of his people. And his honor is commemorated in a statue. Or his face is imprinted on money, a coin. That is glory. That is exaltation. Glory belongs to success. It belongs to success that is achieved in a way that makes you and I stand back and say, Oh my goodness, did you see that? It was beautiful. It was awesome. Glory is sublimity. It creates in us a deep admiration for the one glorified. When Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him, he is saying that the fame, the majesty, the beauty of who he is, is ultimately revealed, fully revealed, fully demonstrated in his humiliation, in his death, in his crucifixion. Now that is strange, right? I mean, we almost never associate glory with weakness, Unless it involves the overcoming of the weakness. We almost never, we never associate glory with, with humiliation and with death. And yet Jesus is saying this is where the ultimate of success of God can be found. In the crucifixion, humiliation, and death of the Son. For you this morning where you sit. The ultimate place for you to confront the splendor and beauty of God. Is not a sunset on 38 or a mountain valley in Colorado. It's not even in the face of your newborn child or grandbaby. It is in the crucifixion of Jesus the Son. Why? Because in the crucifixion of Jesus the Son, the love of God gets its due. In the crucifixion of Jesus the Son, the love of God is finally put on full display. Why? Because in the crucifixion of Jesus the Son, God takes on the shame and cursedness and pain that we have set in motion. All the evil that we can never take back. All the rightful anger that every injustice deserves. And he takes it upon himself. And he allows himself to be crushed. So that it never crushes you. And that is how love wins. At the cross, God's love is crowned in victory. Because it's at the cross that he actually wins you. At the cross, he gets you back. At the cross, God gets his world back. As its Savior. But you see, the reason that Jesus is not panicked on this night, though he knows of all the betrayals and all the humiliation and all the pain, is because at the moment when our evil shouts the loudest, he knows that his love will shine the brightest. And we will look back at it one day, and we will say, look, there is glory. If you are with us this morning, and you are not a Christian, let me first tell you that we are so glad that you are here. We want you to find in our church a place that you can find the space and the help that you need to consider the claims of Jesus Christ for yourself, as you are. And if that is you, let me tell you this, there's a lot of places to start, but let me suggest that you start with the cross. Start with the death of Jesus and its meaning for you personally. This is the event that Jesus says you can know God most fully, where his glory is most clear. 
It is the place to start to understand what a relationship with him really looks like. If you're considering Christianity this morning, start with the cross. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, that is to say you have a sense already of what the death of Jesus might mean for you, let me remind you of the character of love in the gospel that this passage reinforces. Before the love of God becomes a commandment in your life, it must first be a gift. Before the love of God is ever before the love of God is ever a commandment in your life, it is first a gift of him. That means that your first priority as a Christian is not to fix yourself. It's not to fix those around you. It is to know and to embrace and to enjoy the love of God as a gift to you. As a binding gift that can never be taken away. Is there a sense that you have lost a vision for God's glory? Have you lost a vision for God's glory? Has has the glory of God become faint in your own soul? Well, Jesus invites you to look at the cross and to remember there the Apostle Paul's logic that if God will go that far to have you, who's to say he won't go all the way and finish it? And in the finishing, along with his son, also give you all things that you need out of the storehouse of his love. Jesus is not panicked because in spite of it all, on this night, he knows that love wins. It wins you and it wins me and it wins his world back. That's the first thing. The second reason for Jesus' hope and confidence is found in his love working itself out then in how we love each other. That is how we love one another actually in the church. Loving one another as brothers and sisters as the family gathered in Jesus' name. Look with me now at verses 34 through 35. We'll go over them again together briefly. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There's certainly a little bit of puzzling language here. Why in the world would Jesus call this commandment new? It's not new because all of a sudden we're commanded to love one another. That's replete in the Old Testament. It's new, I think, because the pattern for love is new in the imagination of the disciples. All of a sudden, we have a concrete expression of the quality and shape of our love for one another. It is the handing over of the Son at sacrifice to himself for the flourishing of each other. Now, I don't think this needs a lot of explanation this morning. The expectation from Jesus is that we would give ourselves to one another in this room. That we would give ourselves to each other where we sit this morning, into the family of God in this city, into the family of God all over the world. Jesus expects our main priority to be a holy love for one another. Now, remember... This is not simply an extension or the perfection of what the world calls love. This is a love that is alien, that is not quite at home in the world. Jesus loved well, and it killed him. Our love for one another will often look radically, radically different from what the world calls love. Let me give you two examples. One ancient, one old, and one new, the ancient first. I want you to listen this morning to how one academic describes the growth of the the early church. It says this. The early Christians did not engage in public preaching. It was too dangerous. There were practically no evangelists or missionaries whose names we know. The early Christians had no mission boards. They did not write treatises on evangelism. After Nero's persecution, Nero was that really bad emperor, Roman emperor. 
after his persecution in the mid-first century, listen to this, the churches in the Roman Empire closed their worship services to visitors. How's that for a church growth strategy? Then listen to this, deacons, deacons, you listening, stood at the doors, the church's doors, and they served as bouncers. I would love to see that. Checking to see that no unbaptized person, no lying informer could get in. And yet the church was growing. Officially, Christianity was a superstition. Prominent people scorned it. Neighbors discriminated against Christians in countless petty ways. Periodically, the church was subject to pogroms, that is, violent mob attacks. It was hard to be a Christian, and still, the church grew. Why? Here's his conclusion. Listen. People were fascinated by it. They were fascinated by the community. They were drawn to it as a magnet because of the lives of Christians, their concern for the weak and the poor, their integrity in the face of persecution, their economic sharing, their sacrificial love, and the high quality of their common life together. Once non-believers were attracted to this kind of community, they became open to talking about the person, that is Jesus, who was at the source of the community itself. Two things I want you to notice from the report. Number one, the love of the early church had a radical flavor to it. It was not at home in the world. A radical flavor to it in the most ordinary of contexts. The radical flavor happened in family, in economics, in quality time together over meals. Radical, not at home, and yet happening in the most ordinary of routines. And two, at, the, at its heart, at the heart of, of the love that the early church had was sacrifice. As I have loved you, so love one another. That's an ancient example that's close to our text this morning. Let me give you a second, a modern one that's closer to us. Um, About three weeks ago, a young man joined a church Bible study in Charleston, South Carolina. And after the study was over, he pulled out a gun and he killed nine people who had just shared their church home with him. Dylan Roof confessed that he killed those nine people specifically and exclusively because they were black. If that makes you angry, it should. Elie Wiesel, the Holocaust survival, tells of the time when Allied forces liberated his concentration camp. Wiesel said that a large army officer came in, and when he first saw the camp, all the atrocities that lay before him, he started cursing and yelling at the top of his lungs. And the child Wiesel thought, watching him, this is what he said, now humanity has come back. Now with that anger... Humanity has finally come back to this place. It is holy love that incites holy anger. Real love is angry over the destruction of the beloved. So Dylan Roof killed nine Christians because they were black. These were our family members. These were our brothers and sisters in Christ. Dr. Anthony Bradley, um, he's now a professor at King's College in New York, one of my former professors in St. Louis, wrote an article recently called Christian forgiveness is transforming the South. And in the article, he he relates how several family members of the victims immediately offered forgiveness to Dylan. And then he writes this. Why were they so quick to forgive? The families were simply exercising a fundamental Christian virtue. When we suffer injustice, the human heart craves revenge. It craves vindication and retaliation. These are also desires that Jesus came to save us from. The swift forgiveness offered by the victim's families, as hard as that must have been, is what Christianity is about. Forgiveness is an extension of love. Christians extend forgiving love to one another, to those who have wronged them, even to their enemies. 
Because this is what they believe God's disposition is to them. Now listen. That's really the part I want you to hear. The grace of forgiveness, in turn, empowers people to forgive others. That's what Jesus is talking about in the passage. That the, the right kind of love, uh, it, it multiplies. But here's what I want you to hear. The irony, of course, is that the very fact of Emmanuel AME members welcoming a white man into their Bible study showed their deep orientation toward love. Given that the AME, that denomination, was birthed from white Christians committing unloving and unwelcoming acts against African Americans in majority white congregations. I don't want you to miss that last part. Bradley says this. Some of the oldest historically black churches were not born from harmless cultural preferences. They weren't churches that people just wanted to go to because they wanted to worship with people of their same color. He says they were birthed out of the church's failure to love. There are cultural legacies, personal ones as well, family legacies, that still exist from the church's failure to love. And so what can heal them? What can heal a failure to love? Well, it's only love's return, isn't it? Only love's return in repentance and in forgiveness, something so concretely and powerfully expressed in the community of Emmanuel AME in Charleston. Charles Williams, one of uh, C.S. Lewis's best friends, he was a medieval scholar, he once wrote this, talking about Beatrice, the figure of Beatrice with Dante, and he, he wrote, where love has once been, it does not accept in hell refuse to return. Where love has once been, it does not accept in hell refuse to return. And the point he was making is that this is true of God's love for us, and God's son He returned for us. He created us. We said we didn't want him. And he returned for us in love. And now through his son, Jesus tells us, he expects love's return through us to participate in the healing of his world. I want to end briefly this morning with three questions for you to think about. I've never done this before, but I know that some of you drive home afterwards and maybe you'll talk about this. So here are three questions to talk about or for you to think about even this week as you think about the passage we read this morning. Here's the first one. Have you personally, have you personally been struck by the glory of God in the cross? Have you been struck by the glory of God in the cross? Has the sense of, has the overwhelming sense of majesty and beauty from the sacrifice of the Son for you, has it found its place in your own heart? Number two, where in your own life do you need right now for the love of Jesus Christ to win? Where do you need the love of Jesus to win? Uh, um, Culturally. A personal sin pattern, a broken relationship. Where does holy love need to displace your cynicism or pessimism or panic and give you hope instead? Where do you need the love of Jesus Christ to win for you? And then finally this morning, how is the peculiar love of Jesus for you, the love that is not at all home in the world, how is that love leading you to love his people, whatever church you settle down with? How is that lead, How is it shaping your love? What Jesus teaches us is that love does things. <laughs> it does things. It's concrete. What is his love doing in you, in the community of his people? As I have loved you, that is, as I have given my life for you to win you, so you are to love one another. That's his hope. <laughs> That's Jesus' hope. That's the strategy that has best served the church throughout all her days past. It will best serve us as his people in all the days to come. Let me pray for us.